1: This is
2: where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy nopith Connecticut's U.S. Senator Chris Murphy remembers being briefed more than two months ago by White House officials. He tells the Washington Post the briefing about novel coronavirus was chilling to him. And he didn't leave that meeting feeling confident the federal government could handle the virus if and when it came to the U.S. In fact, that same day he tweeted that he didn't think the administration was taking it seriously enough. Does he think the administration is taking the pandemic we're in now seriously? Today, Where We Live, Senator Murphy joins us to answer our questions and yours. You can join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Today, I'm broadcasting via Zoom, and that's how U.S. Senator Chris Murphy is joining us today. Senator Murphy, thanks for joining us on Where We Live.
3: Good morning. Thank you very much for having me.
2: I just referenced this White House briefing uh, that you talked about uh, in early February. You also tweeted about it that same day. You said you left that meeting feeling... Chilled because of the information that you were hearing, as well as the fact that uh, you and other senators at the time were pressing the White House to do more with this coronavirus abroad and not yet in this country to the degree it is today. Uh, now, as we talk, uh, we're hearing from the White House 100,000 to 240,000 Americans may die during this pandemic, millions are unemployed. Did you think it would get this bad?
3: I didn't think it would get uh, this bad. Uh, I still do not believe that 100,000 Americans need to die. Uh, But I posted that, I think, mere minutes after walking out of that February 5th meeting because it was stunning to me how cavalier the administration was in early February about a virus that had clearly um, shown its ferocity in China, and was really at that point destined to get to the United States. Um, The essential bone of contention in that meeting was that several senators, Republicans and Democrats, were pressing the administration to ask for emergency funding in early February, and specifically because we knew that local public health systems, hospitals and states weren't ready to be able to confront a virus of this size and scope we needed supplies we needed early staffing we needed training and the administration told us at that point that they had it under control which was their you know line publicly and privately in those early weeks and that they didn't need any new funding that was a fatal mistake uh, they should have recognized that we were not ready that we needed to build up our supplies and if they had done that back in early February we would be in a different position today we wouldn't be talking about 100 to 200,000 deaths in the United States
2: I just had Governor Lamont on the other day. We're hearing from the governor and other state officials that Connecticut may soon experience this peak of COVID-19, where you're going to see hospitals, beds full. The state may need about 12,000 beds to combat this disease at its peak. That's what Governor Lamont said. Uh, To date in Connecticut, we have more than 200 confirmed COVID-19 cases, Uh, more cases down in the southern part of our state in Fairfield County, New Haven. County. Senator, what are you hearing from local hospitals, local leaders about this upcoming peak, and what does that mean for our state?
3: Well, you know, in this country writ large, we have one of the lowest number of hospital beds per capita, and so we have always operated on a knife edge. We never really had Uh, the surge capacity in the United States to handle an epidemic like this. Uh, And what we're also learning now is that we did not stockpile enough of the critical medical equipment necessary to handle an epidemic like this, especially one that comes with serious respiratory illness requiring ventilators. Uh, And so we are going to be stretched very, very thin in our state. Uh, For uh, weeks now, over a month, many of us have been pressing the administration to take control of the manufacturing and supply chain for critical medical equipment. They have refused to do that, and thus it has left us shorthanded in Connecticut. We don't have enough ventilators. We don't have enough personal protective equipment. The governor is scrambling to set up emergency bed capacity. But you know, without a firmer federal government hand on this crisis, it's really hard for 50 states to do this Uh, one at a time. And that's why it's really hard for a lot of us to understand why the entire emergency response has been left into the hands of governors and why the federal government hasn't stepped up to provide us more support.
2: You can join our conversation with U.S. Senator Chris Murphy. Here's the number, 888-720-9677. That's 888 720 wmpr You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Uh, Ann is calling from Southbury, and you're on the show.
4: Hi, good morning. Good morning, Senator. Um, My name is Nan McKernan, and I live in Southbury, and I actually work for regional hospice in Danbury. Um, So... um, sort of exposed to frontline activity here. My question is kind of twofold as it relates to testing um, because I just actually left St. Mary's Hospital for the fourth day to try to get a a COVID test um, and there's such a shortage of testing that I couldn't. So I guess number one, my question is, how are we addressing the shortage of test kits? And number two, if people really can't get tested, especially those of us who are exposed in the healthcare industry do you think that the numbers being reported of positive cases is accurate because we're not testing everyone who might be symptomatic?
3: Well, for first, uh, the numbers are absolutely not accurate. Uh, I mean, we don't know exactly how many people are positive, but it is um, you know a factor of two to three to four to five beyond what has been identified today. I've heard some epidemiologists suggest that there are as many as 10 times The number of people who are actually positive than have been identified, and that is in part because we don't have enough tests, in part because many people are asymptomatic, and in part because some don't seek to get the test. They just uh, make the personal decision once they have symptoms to self-isolate. Um, the pathway forward on new tests is twofold. One, I I hate to sound like a broken record only 15 minutes into this conversation. First, we need the federal government to take control of the supply chain. I was on the phone two days ago with the head of one of the biggest labs, private labs in the country. And he told me that um, on a daily basis, they are scrambling to come up with all of the components necessary to make the diagnostic test for COVID-19. And they are competing against all sorts of other healthcare manufacturers that use those same components in sometimes for uh, machines that have nothing to do with testing and so that's why the federal government needs to step in and say hey for the time being all the components necessary to do the tests are going to be used to construct the tests so if the federal government steps in and takes control of the testing manufacturing supply chain we will produce more tests but second We've got new technology that we have to expedite. Um, Right now we do centralized testing. The hospitals do the swabs, then they send them off to the labs. That takes a long time and we're constrained by the number of machines that the labs have. They're backordered, new machines aren't gonna arrive to LabCorp and LabQuest until um, late February. The new machines that are being produced by Abbott Labs and others, go right to the hospitals, um, or at least the new kits go right to the hospitals to be used on existing machines. And the faster we can deploy that technology, the more tests can be actually done at places like St. Mary's. Now, that's still maybe 30 days away, um, but that will, um, by the late spring, allow us to do exponentially more testing because we don't have to send all the tests off to the lab. But none of this can happen fast enough because you can't have an effective public health response unless you know who has the virus so that then they can self-isolate and they can go back and trace their contacts and make sure that those people are quarantining as well.
2: Uh, We were talking about the need for states to have adequate uh, protective equipment, ventilators. Uh, On Monday, Governor Lamont uh, told us what happened when the state tried to acquire life-saving equipment.
5: Oh, my God. We've had more orders that were scheduled for delivery in six hours. And, oh, it's just been um, put off for another month. Uh, I I describe it as a surge pricing on Uber. You think you got the car, you see the price going up, you keep uh, hitting yes. Then at the last moment, the car speeds off in another direction. And uh, it's uh, discombobulated the way we're doing the purchasing um, as a country right now. It really should be centralized in the federal government.
2: Uh, Senator Murphy, Lamont went on to say at a Monday briefing that Connecticut asked for 1,500 ventilators and they got 50. Uh, He also mentions uh, he thinks that this should be centralized in the federal government. This relates to to something that you have proposed uh, that could help with the federal supply chain to hospitals. Tell us about your bill.
3: So I've introduced legislation along with a number of my colleagues. Uh, I wrote it and I'm glad to have a lot of people sign on. That would require the administration to take control of the supply chain, command manufacturers to make more of these goods, whether it be ventilators or masks or gowns, and then make decisions about where it goes. Because The problem is twofold. One, we're not making enough and that can only be fixed by federal intervention. But two, um, we um, have a supply chain that's just fundamentally broken. Governor Lamont and I talk all the time, and he tells me these stories about how the prices are being bid up because the states are competing against each other, they're competing against the federal government, they're competing against hospitals, and it's a full-time operation in each state just to try to construct their own supply chain. I get you know probably one or two or three phone calls every day Um, with friends who have leads on big stashes of medical equipment. And I call up the governor or the governor's people and set them on the path of trying to figure out whether this is a real lead, whether it's a con man, a charlatan. Somebody called and said, I've got a relief aid worker in Venezuela who's found a a treasure trove of N95 masks. Get the state down there to pick them up. Governors shouldn't be in that business. The federal government should be creating um, a supply of all of this equipment and then deciding where it goes based on need. And um, our legislation would require the administration to do that and set up specific numerical goals of how many of these ventilators, how many of these masks the government has to procure and then send out to the states. And that would relieve Governor Lamont and Cuomo and DeWine of the responsibility of being supply chain managers. Then they could just get the stuff and worry about running a healthcare system.
2: Uh, along these lines, we heard on Friday that President Trump finally invoked the Defense Production Act uh, to again uh, cause American manufacturers to uh, start manufacturing the things that we need to deal with this pandemic. When you look at what he has done in terms of invoking that that act, um, how much more needs to happen to get it to the level we need to see these the adequate number of coming to Connecticut, senators.
3: So he has um, invoked the Defense Production Act uh, only in a handful of contracts. Uh, So I I think it's been for maybe two or three ventilator contracts worth maybe several thousand ventilators. What he needs to do is use the Defense Production Act to take control of the supply chain. Um, And he's not doing that reportedly because the National Chamber of Commerce and manufacturing groups are pressuring him not to do so. And the reason they don't want him to do it is because they are making a ton of money right now. And Governor Lamont talks about this all the time. Um, They sit in these bidding rooms and the states bid against each other. Um, The price goes up and up and up and up because we're talking about life or death, right? States are willing to pay a giant premium for a ventilator right now because if they don't get that ventilator, their citizens die. We shouldn't allow for the makers of ventilators or masks or um, face shields to be able to become millionaires off of this crisis, off of life and death. And so right now, the president is only invoking the Defense Production Act in very limited ways, reportedly uh, because business groups are pressuring him not to do so because they don't want to lose this center of profit right now, but that's the exact reason that the federal government has the power to to, to exercise these emergency powers during a crisis, because you don't want to allow people um, to be able to make millions off of life or death like this, and you want to make sure that the equipment is produced in large enough numbers and gets to the right places. None of that is happening.
2: You're hearing U.S. Senator Chris Murphy on Zoom. Uh, This is where we live. I'm Lucy nalpa also on Zoom. We're here to take uh, your questions for Senator Murphy. Here's the number, 888-720-9677. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Joyce is calling from South Glastonbury. Joyce, you're on the show.
4: Yes, um, I'm in the medical profession and I would like to know why our CEOs from our hospitals back in December uh, did not take extra steps to, uh, combat this virus. Uh, I know I order and sometimes when I have ordered, I have been told you're spending too much money. Another thing was four weeks ago, I was downing, gloving, putting a mask on and even RNs told me I was over the top and that mask did not help. Now, I don't understand how you can expect the government to handle all of this when our epidemiologists did not even step up to the plate and warn everybody. And our CEOs are getting three, two, three million dollars 3000000 million a year for what? And another thing is many of our nurses who are my age – Uh, in their 60s, even as of last year, two years ago, three years ago, were reapplying for their jobs. And now they want us back. Uh, By the way, I am still working. But many of my friends had to reapply for jobs three and four years ago because they were earning too much money. So you have these very experienced, great nurses who had to reapply for their jobs. And so we don't have the experienced people out there to begin with. And, and that's my comment. Don't expect the government to do everything. And I also told my parents, my, not parents, patients, who refuse to wear a mask that I think of them as onions. When I peel an onion, my eyes burn. And this is what the coronavirus is. Put on mm-hmm. your mask. Joyce, yes. cool.
3: thank you for
2: coming.
3: Thank you, uh, Joyce. Thank you very much. Um, you are a hero um, every single day. I stand in awe of all of our frontline healthcare workers, our food service workers, our public safety professionals, everybody who are, you know, I mean, very literally putting their lives on the line to be out there on the front lines. I mean, a couple things to say about your comment. Um, one, we need to find a way to reward frontline healthcare workers and, and frankly, to Um, create a mechanism to provide incentive to stay out there on the front lines. Uh, I was just uh, on the phone yesterday with some experts uh, in this area talking about the need to perhaps, you know, have a stimulus package for frontline healthcare workers to get some extra pay to those who have been um, out there fighting this virus. Uh, And frankly, you know, are thinking about whether they can continue to do that and put their health at risk for uh, the next several weeks or several months. Second, Um, You are right that no one was ready for this, and this is um, going to be a lesson we all have to learn very quickly. Hospitals didn't have enough personal protective equipment stockpiled. States didn't have enough. The federal government didn't have enough. And so, well, it is no consolation to say that we're going to learn our lesson. Um, We have to, and we have to do it fast. Um, And then lastly, let me agree with you about the salaries that many hospital executives are making today. Um, They have been far too high for far too long, but they are reflective of a healthcare system in which lots of people for a long time have been making gross amounts of profit. Um, and, gross, and, and, and grossly high salaries. And I would argue that this is a moment to also confront that question. Why are people making so much money at the upper echelons of our healthcare system when in the end, it turns out that the frontline healthcare workers, the folks that were you know, making much lower salaries were left vulnerable like this. Um, that's also a question, a, an ideological philosophical question that we need to be talking about.
4: You're
2: hearing Chris Murphy. He's Connecticut's U.S. Senator here on Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're going to continue our conversation after the break. And we also want to hear from you, too. If you're on hold, we'll take your question for Senator Murphy right after the break. The number to call 888-20-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy nall My guest today via Zoom is Connecticut's U.S. Senator Chris Murphy. I'm also joining by Zoom today, but we're here to take your phone calls, your questions for Senator Murphy. Here's the number, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Richard's calling from Wallingford. Richard, you're on the show.
0: Hi, Senator. Um, I want to thank you for your ongoing um, email updates uh, regarding the pandemic. And I think we all need to play our part to maintain social distancing and stay as safe as we can. Um, In that regard, I'm very concerned by what I see going on in Wisconsin today. And I know in Connecticut, we have a primary coming up at the beginning of June. And then there's the federal election, which comes up in November. It could be that we'll be, unfortunately, in another resurgence of the pandemic at that point, if you listen to some of the um, experts. And I'm just wondering if the federal government has any role to play here, especially with regards to the November election, where it can and facilitate some other process or perhaps alter a timeline so that we do get to vote in what I think is going to be a very critical election and still maintain you know, safety and social isolation.
3: Well, I think this is amongst the most important issues that we need to be talking about right now um, and in Connecticut. Uh, we need to remember that we have one of the most restrictive um, voting systems in the nation, if not the most restrictive voting system in the nation. We have no ability to do mail in voting broadly in our state. We have no early voting mechanism in Connecticut. And so, if there is a resurgence in the fall, or if, you know, God forbid we can't beat this thing by the fall then we are going to have a hard time running a functional election in the state of Connecticut. And that is unacceptable, given that this is um, a presidential election. Every state legislative seat will be on the ballot. Uh, And so we need to take some steps now in Connecticut to make sure that um, under our existing laws, there's as much flexibility for individuals as possible. Denise Merrill um, would like to send out an absentee ballot to every Connecticut resident. And that absentee ballot could be um, used by citizens um, uh, in, a, in a way that's normally reserved for times when you personally are sick. But because this broader illness, this broader epidemic will make it hard, if not impossible, for many people to come and vote in person, the argument, and I think it's a credible one, is that absentee ballots under our Constitution and statutes can be used um, by a broad array of citizens today in Connecticut to vote. Uh, and so I hope that the governor and the Secretary of State will be able to put in a, um, uh, into, into process a plan such as that. Across the country, though we need to look at legislation that facilitates every state uh, to adopt mail-in voting systems. Now, in Connecticut, that's harder because we have a particular state constitutional provision that we have to change. But across the country, we can enact legislation that that makes it easier for mail-in systems to be developed and funds the development of these mail-in systems so that we're ready should we still be in some form of crisis in November. Putting off the election um, is not an option uh, as far as I'm concerned. I just think we have to spend right now getting ready and planning to have an election in November, either under existing laws or through new mail in systems.
2: Francis is calling from Southington. Francis, what's your question for Senator Murphy? Francis, are you there? All right, doesn't look like Francis can hear us. I'm going to go to Marianne in West Hartford. Marianne, you're on the show.
6: Yes,
1: thank you for taking my call. I'm a great fan of both uh, where we live and of Senator Murphy, so I appreciate the opportunity. I'm kind of following up on points that Joyce made and that the senator um, answered previously. But essentially, uh, I spent my entire adult career working in hospital systems, uh, primarily two systems. The first system I worked in over a period of eight years uh, the administration went from four vice presidents to 14 vice presidents in eight years. At the same time, clinical staff were being laid off. Uh, in the second system I worked for, which was a relatively small system in the greater Hartford area, the CEO um, ended up um, finagling uh, the second highest uh, salary in the state of Connecticut, and what the audience has to appreciate too is that salary itself is just like the tip of the iceberg. That there are extraordinarily expensive perks that go along with um, senior administration and CEOs. Um, the the fiasco only ended with a public scandal, um, and. Uh, Basically, research shows that over the last, I'm not sure how many, 10 or 20 years, clinical staff proportionately has diminished phenomenally, while administrative staff with high salaries has increased phenomenally. To say that nobody could have seen this pandemic is, is out and out false. I'm sorry, Senator. Anybody with half a brain knows that health care systems in this day and age have to be prepared for mass casualties. Um, If if our CEOs and this expensive administration did not foresee this, then that just proves their incompetence.
2: Marianne, thank you for your call to Senator Murphy. Senator Murphy, would you like to respond?
3: No, I think she's right. I mean, of course we could have foreseen this pandemic. Experts have been warning us for um, decades that it was just a matter of time before one of these viruses or diseases overwhelmed us. And we have also had fire drills um, that should have prepared us, whether it was, uh, you know, um, the swine flu or Ebola or SARS The United States and other countries around the world um, have had to scramble at times to get ready. And so, uh, of course, we should have been better prepared. Um, But I think to your larger point, we have in this country a for profit healthcare system that is not aligned to um, prepare. And to prevent, because to prepare and to prevent means spending money in the short term that doesn't make you more money, that doesn't increase your profits, but that may save lives in the long run. And when you've got a profit-driven healthcare system, there's really no incentive to you know spend money uh, that may or may not be useful down the line, especially when you kind of know in the back of your head that if a pandemic does come the federal government is going to ride to the rescue in some way, shape, or form. And that's exactly what we're doing. We appropriated $100 billion in the uh, emergency relief bill we passed two weeks ago for hospitals. Um, And hospitals will take that money and use it to Sort of plug their holes and to make sure that they can have enough staff, um, but it also is an incentive for them to not make those investments ahead of time. And so, once again, you know we're having this bigger conversation uh, this hour, but I think it's appropriate because so long as you have a system that's built for profit rather than built for better healthcare outcomes, you are going to have a disincentive built in to be prepared for moments like this. And I don't know that it's really you know, ultimately best for only the federal government to uh, be ready. Um, You know, each hospital system should be practicing and prepared, and the incentive system doesn't align for that right now.
2: Mm -hmm. You're hearing U.S. Senator Chris Murphy here on Where We Live. You can join us at 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Senator Murphy, you mentioned uh, the uh, bill that Congress uh, passed that would help uh, hospitals. But let's talk about the millions of Americans who are now unemployed. Uh, we know that uh, you and other Democratic senators had proposed giving up to $2,000 uh, to uh, individuals to deal with this crisis. Uh, now, I believe, Americans will be getting a check for $1,200, but when will that check come and what exactly needs to be injected uh, to into the economy to really help Americans and maybe restart uh, in a few months after this hopefully pandemic uh, moves away?
3: Well, the size of this economic crisis is sort of hard to get your head wrapped around. During the entirety of the great recession from 2007 to 2009, America lost about 9,000 jobs. Um, in the last two weeks, excuse me, uh, nine million jobs. In the last two weeks, we've lost 10 million jobs. Uh, And so um, it is really, at this moment, I I think hard to comprehend how much relief is going to be necessary here. Um, What we argued for early on was a sizable cash payment to families. Um, I got together with Senator Booker, Senator Brown, and others, we proposed um, a $2,000 check to individuals, and then we proposed that it be ongoing, that if unemployment is still high in summer, that an automatic second check be sent. Ultimately, we were not able to prevail on our colleagues for a system of that size and scope, but we did get in this bill a $1,200 per individual payment. That means if you're a family of four, because there's an additional $500 for children, you could be, you know, getting somewhere in the neighborhood of three thousand thirty-five hundred dollars and that will, you know, help pay the bills for a month or two. Um, but we also in this legislation supersized unemployment benefits, and so if you do lose your job, you are going to be eligible for $600 more per week than what you would have been eligible for before this bill passed, and an additional four months of unemployment. Now we may have to come back and adjust that, uh, but for now, uh, we're hopeful that those two provisions are going to, at least in the short term, keep families whole here. But, Lucy, it's important just to mention before we close out that, that discussion of economics um, and economic relief that um, we cannot turn the corner in the economic crisis if we don't fix the public health crisis. So sometimes I get mad at my colleagues because they tend to spend too much of their time talking about fixing the economic crisis. way to fix the economic crisis is to turn the corner on the virus. And that's why our first, second, and third job right now needs to be a public health response.
2: You mentioned your colleagues, but that's also a message from President Trump uh, at first saying that the country could open up by Easter and now um, saying social distancing up until the end of April. Uh, Again, uh, that seems uh, uh, too premature, um, as you mentioned, that you have to figure out a way to get past this virus before uh, you can really start to help uh, the country restart again.
3: Yeah, I mean, I I think we have all just sort of become anesthetized to the way that President Trump talks. We've normalized. Um, the uh, just sort of outrageous way in which he twists and turns on a daily basis. But, um, you know, he has been completely counterproductive. There are days in which he conveys a seriousness about this epidemic. And then literally 24 hours later, um, he shows up at the podium and says that he wants to open up the sports leagues, that he wants everybody to go to church for Easter. Um, Right now, we need to make it clear that we need to keep our head down. We need to uh, continue to uh, shelter in place to stay at home uh, until we have dramatically reduced the rate of transmission uh, of this virus and if we um, change our practices too early Then all of this sacrifice will be for nothing uh, because the virus will come roaring back and we will just be right back in the same place uh, again. And so, you know, the federal uh, government, the the Trump administration has been a a general debacle, but his moral leadership, which we need more than ever um, in terms of creating an expectation about how we conduct our lives, is absent. Luckily, we have leaders, Republicans and Democrats uh, in governors offices like Governor Lamont that have been very clear on a day-to-day basis. And I just recommend to people in Connecticut, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, you're a supporter or opponent of the president, um, listen to Governor Lamont right now. Don't pay attention to what the president of the United States is saying. Listen to Governor Lamont's daily press conferences.
2: And Senator, before I take a series of callers waiting to ask you a question, the Washington Post did report that people who didn't use direct deposit for their federal tax returns won't be receiving those checks from the federal government for months to come. What can be done to speed up the checks for those people?
3: So right, one of the things that my office is working on on a daily basis is pressuring the administration to find ways to expedite checks. um, And we're getting small victories on a daily basis. At first, one of the things the administration said was that if you're a senior citizen who doesn't file an income tax statement because you don't make enough, you would have to file one to get your uh, your cash payment. We fixed that, we got the administration to do a workaround and now seniors who don't file income taxes, uh, who just get a social security check every year are gonna get their cash payment automatically. Um, and you're referencing an, another issue that has come up that we are working on as we speak. So we are gonna be in constant dialogue with the administration to try to get rebate checks to people out as quickly as possible, as fast as possible, their goal initially, was for individuals who had filed income taxes in 2019 for that money to be out the door three weeks after the stimulus bill was passed. So that would be about a week to 10 days from now. Um, And uh, we're going to keep pressing the administration to get the money out quick and to do as many workarounds as are possible
2: you can join our conversation with Senator Murphy, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Bill has been holding from Windsor. Bill, go ahead.
5: Yes. Oh, hi. Uh, I'm a big fan of the Green New Deal as a way to reroute after, and even now, because there's so many people that are idle in government, they could be planning and writing legislation around the Green New Deal. And uh, I've seen a lot of jobs go overseas. I'm a I'm a Connecticut native. I've I've been I'm an industrial design engineer, and I'm I'm in my 60s. And I've seen so many companies leave. Uh, I think about 70 percent of the manufacturing in America has either gone offshore or consolidated into big companies in aerospace and defense. And there's a lot of talent tied up there. And I, I was hoping and wondering that somebody in the Senate might pick up the Green New Deal as a battle cry and do something for us. So, I mean, sure, we've got to get over this this. Uh,
3: this uh, pandemic, but, uh, what's next? Sure. Well, uh, I, thank you for your comment. Uh, Senator uh, Ed Markey of Massachusetts is the sponsor of the green new deal, uh, resolution in the Senate, uh, contrary to, uh, p- popular opinion, the, uh, the green new deal is actually not a piece of legislation. It's just a statement of principles. Uh, it's a, it's a set of principles that I support. Uh, I think that there's um, a win-win, uh, in that you can create millions of jobs in green energy while at the same time uh, doing our part in the United States as a country with 5% of the population and 25% of the pollution uh, in cleaning up our atmosphere. Um, but I think, as you referenced, right now, our focus needs to be on um, uh, making sure that we address the public health epidemic, we keep alive uh, small businesses that are facing an extinction event right now, And we make sure that families can pay their bills. Um, Having a big legislative fight between Republicans and Democrats, the administration and Congress uh, over renewable energy legislation um, is probably not right for this crisis moment. I remain a huge supporter of a massive rewrite of the nation's energy laws. But right now, I think we've um, got to narrow our focus to keeping our economy alive and making sure that we beat this virus and make sure that healthcare workers have everything that they need. And so, um, while I think it will be tempting to, you know, try to bring in a lot of uh, important issues uh, into the present debate. Um, I think there's a capacity issue in Congress, quite uh, honestly, and we've got to focus on the most exigent issues uh, at at, at this present time.
2: Uh, Senator Murphy, Kathy on Twitter asked, what's being done to ensure that the concerns of the disability community are included in this next coronavirus package? Uh, She wants to make sure that Congress does not leave this community behind.
3: Well, you know, that's been important with respect to the dispensing of these cash payments amongst that population that often doesn't file Um, income taxes, because they get a Social Security benefit, are the disabled. And so um, that is one of the populations we're fighting gets their cash payment without having to go through the hassle of filing a uh, income tax return that they generally aren't required to file. Um, But yes, we want to make sure that every vulnerable population is protected here. Um, And one of the things we really worry about right now is hunger at a time like this. It's obviously, you know, harder to get out to the grocery store. um, If you are disabled, if you have complicated health issues, you have been advised by your physician and by the governor to stay at home. Uh, And so one of the things I'm uh, really pushing is for more funding to come down to the states to run meal delivery programs. And to the extent possible, if you are Uh, healthy. And if you are able right now, you can go on to the state website and sign up to volunteer. One of the things we need right now uh, are volunteers to do meal deliveries. There are a number of not-for-profits that are right now doing that for the disabled and the elderly. And well, not everybody may be comfortable um, you know, putting themselves out there, uh, there are needs uh, all across the country, but in Connecticut, to help make sure that individuals who have disabilities or seniors who are uh, at home and don't have relatives who can uh, help them out um, get the food that they need.
2: You can join our conversation with U.S. Senator Chris Murphy, the number 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Joan's calling from Wallingford. Joan, you're on where we live.
7: Hi, Lucy. Hi, Chris. Uh, Chris, thank you for all of your leadership. You've been great in this situation. I'm calling with more of a concern than a question. Um, I have an uncle in a nursing home, and he... uh, Two weeks ago, I was told that there was a confirmed case of COVID on the floor where he is. Um, last week, I was told that there were 70, unconfirmed, but um, and that the, uh, the patients would not be tested. And so those numbers are not part of the numbers that we're getting uh, from uh, all the statistics. Uh, yesterday, I was told he has COVID. So um, I think um, i recently read that there are 57 nursing homes in the state that have had at least one case, and it sounds like it's going to go through those nursing homes like wildfire. I don't think it's being reported as well as it should be, um, and I'll just wait and see what you have to say about that.
3: Thank you, John. I'm sorry for your uncle's uh, diagnosis, but I unfortunately think you are correct that in many uh, congregate healthcare institutions like nursing homes, the numbers are much, much higher than we know. Uh, And part of the reason that we are so focused on ramping up testing is that the first place we need to deploy those tests are to the nursing homes. Um, There are, um, you know, certain, I, I don't know right now whether you to be testing people who are asymptomatic. But in nursing homes, you may, uh, because you want to know as quickly as possible who uh, has the positive diagnosis uh, so, that then healthcare workers can align themselves in a way that makes sure that it doesn't spread. As you mentioned, right now, you may have one or two that have officially tested positive, but you might have dozens more who are asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic and are positive as well. And without healthcare workers having full visibility in, in institutions, it's hard to control. Uh, the, the spread. It's also where we need PPE to go first. Um, we need to make sure that uh, individuals who are working in those critical care settings, whether it be in hospitals or nursing homes, have um, all of the personal protective equipment they need. And once again, there's just no way to fill that need Uh, Unless you get President Trump to order manufacturers to make more of these tests and to make more of this personal protective equipment. And and hopefully my legislation passes that requires the president to do that. Uh, But until then, you are right. We're going to be operating on a knife's edge uh, in many of these uh, critical care congregate institutions.
2: You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel on Zoom today. My guest on Zoom, U.S. Senator Chris Murphy. After the break, we're going to continue our conversation and we'll keep taking your calls. Here's the number, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. you're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy daltas On Zoom today, also on Zoom, Chris Murphy, Connecticut's U.S. Senator. You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Medina is calling in from East Windsor. Medina, you're on the show.
6: Yeah, good morning, everybody. The woman on the line just spoke about COVID-19 going through nursing homes like wildfire and i want to say something about immigration detention centers uh, we have lots of immigrants today trapped in immigration centers they are waiting for their death because there is no sanitary no nutritious food everything is terrible there most of them never had committed any crime one of them is my husband who is bahadir majidus more than two years already in detention center in Alabama et cetera. So what Christian Murphy wanna do for them because he never uh, did any crime and he's a father, he's a husband, I'm in terrible situation without my husband before COVID-19, especially now we have COVID-19. He has a health problem in there. I have uh, two children who has a health problem in here. If they're going to be infected, they cannot get better. And my husband never hold his third child to his hand because I was 39 weeks pregnant when I took him. I just want to know what Christian Murphy want to do for innocent people's life in detention centers.
2: Well, thank you, Medina, for your call. And we're sorry to hear uh, that your husband is being detained and you are struggling at your home with your children. Uh, Senator Murphy, what can you tell uh, Medina again, who is worried about COVID spreading in these ICE detention centers?
3: Well, I I am also sorry for Medina's situation. The first thing to say is that I hope as you know, Medina, um, I am a Um, just um, vociferous opponent of this president's immigration policies, and one of the biggest changes that he enacted from the Obama administration was to uh, effectively go after uh, undocumented individuals uh, and lock them up regardless of whether they posed any danger to their community. Uh, President Obama had said, listen, um, we are going to prioritize uh, detaining and deporting individuals who have committed a crime, and uh, President Trump changed that guidance. And now, um, as you have described, we have mothers and fathers who are being ripped away from their children uh, and locked up in detention centers, uh, being ready for deportation. That is inhumane. It's un-American. Um, there is a better way to deal with this um, with this issue. And I would argue that comes through comprehensive legislation that provides a pathway to citizenship for individuals who have um, lived in the United States for a period of time, played by the rules, uh, who have not committed any offenses. Uh, I wish we could get that legislation passed. Of course, the president would uh, never consider it. But you raise this immediate concern, which is um, whether or not our detention centers are safe. Uh, and, um, you know, I think we need to press the administration to really think about it. Uh, whether or not it remains the best policy to lock up individuals in uh, these uh, close contact settings when the individuals have committed no um, crimes other than uh, entry into the United States without documentation. Um, and so uh, I, I would certainly support uh, and have pressed this administration to um, make different decisions. I would support legislation uh, requiring the administration uh, to start releasing nonviolent, non-criminal individuals who are uh, in detention. Um, and frankly, what we have found when we have done uh, programs like this on the border is that the vast majority of individuals um, come back for their court date. Um, you know, most individuals, you know, want to go through the legal process of um, becoming American citizens or getting their green card, and they don't want to exist permanently in the shadows. And so if you did release individuals, um, 90% of them would um, come back and check in uh, once this crisis was over and continue the appropriate process. Um, So um, I wish you weren't in the situation that you are in. Um, Much of what this election will be fought over this November is having a more compassionate, more common sense immigration policy in this country.
2: Senator Murphy, we just have a couple of minutes left. I understand leadership in Congress, uh, uh, the Congress may be back by April 20th, but in terms of the fact that this pandemic is still rolling through our country, uh, states are dealing with peaks. uh, We're going to see peak hospitalizations and unfortunately more deaths. What does that mean for how Congress can do its job in the next couple of months?
3: Well, I, I think the Congress should be in session right now. I think it was irresponsible for us to go on recess in the middle of this crisis, but it probably needs the, means that Congress needs to do its job uh, differently. Um, uh, Congress can vote remotely. We would have to pass uh, a rules change, not a law change, in order to do that. My understanding is that Senator McConnell opposes that change. Um, You know, but, you know, especially for, you know, those of us with families ourselves, You know, voting remotely would be really important. Um, I have young kids at home. I'm, you know, the the principal of of of, uh, you know the the homeschool happening uh, here. And so, you know, the ability to remote vote to not potentially expose myself and bring the virus back home um, would be really really important right now. And so, I hope that my colleagues, you know, take a look at our ability to um, be present in voting, even if we may not be in the Senate and the House chamber.
2: Um, If you were able to vote remotely, there are concerns about cybersecurity, Senator Murphy?
3: There are, um, but we should be working through those right now. I mean, my understanding is that Senator McConnell just, you know, is outright opposed to remote voting, and so we're not sort of working through those questions presently i think we should take the time understand that it would be a temporary system i don't have any interest in remote voting being the way in which we do business permanently but you know we you know not only have a lot of young parents not that many we have some young parents in the senate Um, We have a lot of older Senators, Senators that have had health complications in the past. And it's not just the Senators who have to come back when we vote, it's literally thousands of other workers who have to come back to Washington and we should be looking out for uh, their safety as well.
2: This is all such a mess, uh, Senator Murphy. Uh, You can imagine that a lot of your constituents aren't feeling very hopeful right now. What can you tell them?
3: Well, listen. What I can tell them is that you know ultimately, uh, our ability to overcome this virus lies in our hands. This is not a crisis that can be met by government alone. We can, through individual decisions about how we conduct our lives, um, be able to overcome this collectively. And you know, well, it sometimes and feels. And thank little-
2: you, thank you, Senator Murphy. I think we'll have to leave it there. We appreciate your.